Microsoft was the dominant technology company in the 1990s until it came under fire for anti-competitive practices. Internet Explorer was tightly coupled to the Windows operating system, which prevented Netscape Navigator, a competing browser, from reaching users on this dominant platform, the Windows platform. This episode is about antitrust, what businesses can and cannot do in the name of competition, and what the impact of Microsoft's legal battles in the late 1990s was, and how the law might respond to potential technology monopolies in the near future, such as Facebook, Google, and Uber. Our guest today is Harry First, a professor of law at the New York University School of Law. He wrote a textbook called The Microsoft Antitrust Cases, Competition Policy for the 21st Century. And we get into all kinds of interesting topics, like what makes a monopoly? Uh, is it actually bad to be a monopoly? Um, what are the practices that make a monopoly bad? And all kinds of interesting ideas around business and software I hope you enjoy this episode, and please give me feedback on this, because this is less directly related to engineering itself, more related to the impact of certain business outcomes that can arise from engineering decisions. Harry First is a professor of law at the New York University School of Law and the co-author of The Microsoft Antitrust Cases, Competition Policy for the 21st Century. Harry, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff. I want to start off by talking about antitrust and monopoly in broad terms, and then we'll get into the Microsoft legal cases. What is antitrust? So antitrust is uh, a poorly named statute, um, which... Uh, dates from 1890, when it was about a legal device called a trust. But really, a better name for it would be pro-competition. So it's a statute that um, is about fostering competition in markets and making certain that uh, players in those markets, firms, uh, don't restrain competition. Okay, and why do we need competition in markets? So uh, there are two main things that antitrust law tries to do and benefits of competition. So one benefit of competition is lower price. And by lower price, we all know what lower prices are, but the real goal is to have price um, come closest to cost so that the sellers aren't making excessive profits. So that's one purpose. The second purpose is to make sure that competitors aren't excluded from the market. Uh, so antitrust is about stopping exclusion. And we don't like exclusion because, well, we like competitors so the prices go down, but also so that different products are produced so that consumers have choice uh, and consumers can decide what they prefer. And also, very importantly today, so that firms uh, have incentives to innovate, uh, to push each other to come out with new products uh, the new products that we um, eventually may come to love or may decide we don't like. Mm. So when we're talking about a market with multiple competitors, what is meant by the term anti-competitive behavior? Well, anti-competitive behavior um, involves two kinds of things. One is agreements. Generally, the ones that are of most concern are agreements between or among competitors. So they may be agreements to fix prices. That's 
a core problem I just mentioned, but also agreements as to the kinds of services that are offered, the terms of service, um, the areas in which competitors will operate. So an agreement that says I'll take this geographic market, you take that one, or I'll take this product market, you take that product market. Uh, those kinds of agreements um, are uh, of concern. So those restrain competitive choices, um, they restrain competition between the firms, um, and you have less competition. Uh, so um, that's a primary concern, but there's also a concern for the behavior of um, single firms or monopoly firms that uh, have such a large share of the market that they can set a high price uh, or exclude future competitors, particularly disruptive competitors. Uh, so that's a particular concern of antitrust law. Okay. So companies can take different types of actions, and some actions are going to proactively help their customers, and other times the actions that a company takes might just be targeted at hurting a rival and just disrupting somebody who might become a competitor why is it important for us to distinguish between these two types of strategic actions, like the type of action that could proactively help a customer and the type of action that could just hurt a rival company? Well, great question. Um, the, the ultimate goal um, which, uh, of antitrust that many express, although it sometimes has an unclear meaning, is to uh, increase consumer welfare. So the focus is on what will benefit consumers. Uh, so if firms um, engage in what we think of as pro-competitive behavior, um, it's behavior that will benefit consumers by uh, lowering price, operating more efficiently, uh, bringing new products to market, things like that. Uh, so they help the customer, uh, and that is the goal. That's what competition is supposed to do. Um, and um, the other end is instead of helping the customer, you hurt the competitor. So Businesses want to win, as we all know, and um, you know we would prefer them to win by doing things that help customers, not winning by doing things that hurt their competitors. So mm -hmm. we would rather have them lower prices than bomb their competitors' factories. <laughs> right. So in the case of Microsoft, what is an example of a business decision that was made in the 90s or early 2000s that was designed to hurt rivals and in in contrast with a decision that would proactively help their customers. Perhaps if we're talking about this Microsoft stuff, we're thinking of it in terms of this is a decision that Microsoft would have made with the intent of creating or preserving monopoly status. Right. So um, there were a lot of things that Microsoft did, and let me just, um, I'll pick one um, that was... Um, clearly designed to hurt uh, a competitor. So at one point, um, Apple needed a browser for um, its uh, Mac operating system. And um, it also needed to have um, uh, Word, the Office Productivity Suite, um, but particularly the Word, uh, uh, word processing program uh, that would operate on Apple computers. Um, so um, Apple had a choice. They could either they could use different kinds of browsers. And Bill Gates um, said to Steve Jobs, um, "Well, if you decide to use Netscape, 
we won't develop a compatible version of Word for Apple. So you'll be up the creek, shall we say. I'm sure he said it more colorfully. Um, on the other hand, if you agree to use Nets, if you agree to use Internet Explorer and not Netscape, then we will develop um, the word processing program that will be compatible with Apple. So basically, saying um, you know we need we want to exclude Netscape from the market, and we're going to use our power that we have over you, Apple. Hard to believe now that. Microsoft at one point did have power over Apple. That's why I chose the example. We're going to use that to pressure you to make a business decision that you might otherwise not have made. Um, Certainly. So that's that's an example. Now, the example that was perhaps more ambiguous, although in the end not, um, at one point um, there weren't browsers, um, hard to believe. Uh, and at one point the question was um, how to get browsers to consumers. Netscape was doing very well, had a very popular browser, and um, Microsoft said, well, we're just going to offer Windows with um, our Internet Explorer browser bundled in, um, in a way that consumers um, would get it whether they wanted it or not. Um, now they said, gee, this is great, you have an integrated program, it works seamlessly, blah, blah. On the other hand, it excluded Netscape from the market, and in fact, at that point, the browser, the Internet Explorer browser, was an inferior one. So, um, a lot of the argument, uh, at least that Microsoft put forward in the um, in some of the litigation, was we did this to help consumers to offer them an integrated product. Argument that the prosecutors put forward was no, you didn't. You could offer it in different ways. This was really an effort not to help consumers, but to hurt competitors, to exclude the upstart competitor, um, the disruptive competitor, which was Netscape, um, from the market. So, so you've talked about how you know this could be ambiguous or not ambiguous, depending on the way that it's framed in the courts, depending on the way that Microsoft framed it. Um, my impression was that it was kind of a confluence of those offensive decisions that Microsoft made together with the public perception of Microsoft and the way that Microsoft flaunted itself. And I think this has a lot of historical relevance, particularly particularly when you compare that to how companies uh, create public perceptions for themselves today. What was the public's perception of Microsoft in the late 90s and how was Microsoft presenting itself? Well, it's um, it's a great question. It's sort of hard. It's hard to put yourself in the full public's point of view. Um, this was a time in which you know people were sort of waking up to the possibilities of the internet. You have to say that Bill Gates was fully aware of how um, the industry was moving, and he understood the challenge that Netscape posed and um, the um, sort of the challenge of the internet. Um, so he identified that. Um, I think that, um, in part, there really were, in a way, two camps. There were the lovers of Microsoft thought that this was just the hottest technology that could be. But I think the public perception of Microsoft um, was affected actually a lot during the course of the trial um, on the Monopoly case. Uh, in which Microsoft came across as the heavy, 
as just willing to throw its weight around. Um, often, interestingly enough, in light of um, today's dispute still, often revealed in emails that were um, unvarnished, shall we say, um, where it revealed that they just wanted to get rid of Netscape. And so I think the public's perception began to shift, and there was a lot of news coverage. This was front-page news in uh, major newspapers, the New York Times, the Washington Post, um, about the trial and about what Microsoft did to try to thwart Netscape's efforts. Okay, so this this case that went to uh, the uh, that was in front of the U.S. Justice Department. This was the center of the case was around the browser. Is that correct? It's the it was yeah, the browser. That, that the really Netscape was the heart decision. of the case, right? Yeah. Okay. So so. Was that case representative of other things that Microsoft was doing, like these, you know, these other things like the the Microsoft Word type of leverage that uh, Microsoft was trying to do against Apple? Well, what what happened in the course of the litigation? The the litigation was triggered, although it's a more complicated story and interesting in itself. But the particular case that the Justice Department and um, twenty states brought. Um, in 1998 um, was initially triggered by this um, bundling in of the Internet Explorer browser into Windows. So um, that was the trigger, but that wasn't the only thing that the government prosecutors presented in court. They presented a, a lot of different behavior that involved the Java programming language, that involved Sun, pressuring Sun that involved efforts to uh, do in IBM's competing um, OS2 um, operating system. Uh, so it, it turned out, although the trigger was the browser and it was sort of the heart of the case, uh, it turned out that this was um, what was thought of as systemic behavior. It was the way Microsoft operated, um, where they were willing to... Um, you know, throw their weight around uh, as against, um, you know, it was AOL, it was just a whole host of players in the industry, all designed to push out the rival um, browser, which was Netscape, as well as the Java programming language. Mm -hmm. So this collection of behaviors was really, I think it was epitomized by the the way that Bill Gates was depicted in these uh, these 1998 videotaped depositions that eventually made it to you know the the the, the court. Well, I mean, they, he was deposed, and then this footage was shown in court. And it this this is pretty interesting, you know. And I was kind of researching for this 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 episode, uh, you know. Like I didn't realize that Bill Gates was kind of vicious back then because you look at footage of him now, especially now that he's right, heavily involved right. with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He's this super docile guy. You couldn't imagine him, you know, killing a fly. Uh, but you know, compare that to to his his uh, his attitudes um, in the '90s, and it, it is starkly contrasting. Well. It is interesting, um, sort of the culture of Microsoft. It was not just Gates, but Steve Ballmer as well, uh, which was a very aggressive culture. And um, 
it seemed to be indifferent to either the law or government efforts to control the company from Washington. So um, that de the deposition um, was, uh, you know, sort of classic uh, making or just allowing this person to present himself in a way that appeared incredibly evasive and, um, you know, it, just aggressive. Uh, and it did not help his case at all. It's the first thing. Well, it wasn't wasn't the first contact that the district court judge who tried the case had, but it really, I think it helped to set the tone. Um, Bill Gates is a very smart guy, and by the time a later case came around that had to do with um, the remedy, uh, and he testified in court then, uh, he had learned how to present himself um, much better. Uh, but at that point, he, he, he hadn't, and perhaps like um, very successful people, when they turn into clients, they might not listen to what their lawyers tell them. Um, so that, that did not help Microsoft's case. Although it also seems like, to some degree, the attitude that Bill Gates and Microsoft took in the early days of the trial was due to sort of a contempt of the court for its lack of technical understanding, uh, which was maybe not entirely uh, unjustified because like uh, I think I remember you know some of the uh, some of the key prosecutors didn't use computers on a regular basis. Was there an element of of like t uh, technical ability versus non-technical ability that played into the uh, the way that the trial proceeded? Well, I, I think in part it's, it is an arrogance thing, and um, it's, you know, um, it's the difficulty sometimes that technical people have in trying to translate things to lay people. Uh, so um, district court judges, um, uh, Judge Jackson um, was a smart guy. He's not a technical person, and when you try a case, you have to you have to be able to make your case understandable. It's actually one of the great strengths of the U.S. legal system. Uh, so you can't just talk to yourself. You have to talk to uh, smart people who see a range of things and make it understandable. And this is what David Boies, as the uh, lead um, lawyer for the governments, was, was able to do. Um, now, Microsoft was, it, and I think on the government side, uh, yes, of course, there was a learning curve. Um, these are lawyers, you know, we're, we're really not trained uh, as computer people. Uh, but lawyers have to understand the area in which they're practicing from a technical end. It's true, not just here, but in, in every kind of case. So there was a learning curve. And the problem is, of course, that Microsoft um, had an informational advantage. They both knew what they did um, and... Um, you know, knew what things they could try to do, perhaps to hide those things, and understood the technology. So yeah, it was a challenge, I think, from the government's point of view. They hired experts. They tried to understand better. Uh, and I think in the earlier days, um, it, it may have been a little problematic. But Microsoft hurt itself by um, sort of pushing things a bit too far um, and doing things in ways that um, just didn't make sense to Judge Jackson. Uh, so at one point they were ordered to uh, unbundle the code for um, 
an early version than an explorer. So they took Judge Jackson literally. They said, well, you know, Judge, if we do this, Windows won't work. And guess what? We're going to make Windows not work. Um, so um, this was not a good move. Um, they had better ways of making their point. But instead, what they seemed to tell him was, you can't do anything about this. Ha ha. And he found ways. Now, he maybe didn't quite understand what he was doing. and um, But ways of masking or, you know, um, uh, sort of um, removing, quote-unquote, windows. He said, I can do it. Why? Why? It's still working. Um, and then he brought in an expert, Ed Felton, who said, this is ridiculous. So um, technical problems are a problem. Uh, the government had a learning curve, but I think they got up it fairly well. Yeah, that's my impression. It, it does feel like by the end of the trial, they had the case boiled down to a key set of issues where the technical obfuscation was boiled out of it, and uh, there was really a, a frank discussion where uh, the, the prosecutors did understand what they were prosecuting Microsoft for, and maybe you could describe what the outcome of the trial was. I mean, we kind of glossed over this a little bit, but maybe you could kind of abbreviate the proceedings and then describe what the outcome of the trial was. Well, the outcome of the trial, basically, I mean, the government presented um, a case sort of focused on bundling, but the other things, the bottom line of all sort of looking across the broad spectrum was that Microsoft's conduct was intentionally designed to exclude its disruptive rival, Netscape and um, Sun, um, through means that were not that didn't help consumers, but just hurt them. Um, and, you know, again, going through all of uh, the different things that it did, particularly the bundling in of, um, of the Internet Explorer browser, but in a way that meant that you couldn't remove it. So it was a little more focused than just integrating the products. You couldn't disintegrate the products. Um, that, was, that was the core. And then all this other activity. The bottom line was that the district court judge found in a very lengthy opinion um, that, in fact, Microsoft's conduct was aimed at suppressing competition and suppressing innovation, um, you know, to send a message to um, uh, the technical community that if you go up against a Microsoft product, we are going to go after you. Um, so legally, it was a finding that they had violated Section 2 of the Sherman Act, which is uh, uh, outlaws monopolization, as well as Section 1, which are these agreements and restraint of trade. Um, and then the question was the remedy, which became a very difficult part of it. But it was pretty much a clear victory for the government that uh, Microsoft, through lots of different ways, had violated the antitrust laws. Yeah, so this remedy process was a little drawn out. What what was the ultimate outcome of that? Well, this, this I think, is the is the um, most problematic part of the government's case, the most difficult. And frankly, it continues to be difficult in uh, high technology cases. So the, once you find out what's going on in the past, the question is, well, what do you do about it? Um, now, this is a civil case. Microsoft's not being punished for something. There's not a fine. Um, nobody goes to jail. Um, it's what sort of behave, what do you tell them not to do in the future? Um, 
particularly, you know, technology moves on, as you know. Um, how can you deal with this? So there were two basic approaches. One is to tell them to stop doing a bunch of different things called a conduct remedy. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And maybe some positive things. You must share some technology or, you know, share information. Uh, so that's one part of the remedy. The second part is, well, maybe this is systemic. This is the way Microsoft operates. This, the only way we can change them for the future to be more competitive is to restructure them so that the incentives they had uh, will be altered in the future. So the, this is, uh, the government pursued both aspects for remedy. Um, the district court judge said, okay, we'll stop them and join them from doing certain things, but we're also going to restructure them. We're going to break them up um, in sometime in the future. But for now, we're going to wait and see what the Court of Appeals does. So he s stayed that remedy, um, and um, uh, then the case went on appeal. So very difficult to figure out what do you tell them to stop doing, um, and is it time to break them up? Mm -hmm. And it was ultimately decided that the company did not need to break up. Yeah, through a lengthy process, um, when the case went up on appeal, there were some uh, differences in the way the Court of Appeals saw the case, although not basically in the heart of the case. And the Court of Appeals did not like the restructuring remedy, said the remedy has to be tailored to the wrong, to what Microsoft did wrong. So the Court of Appeals vacated that remedy and said, you go back to the district court judge and let the district court judge figure out what the remedy should be. Uh, mm -hmm. Ultimately, some but not all of the parties settled um, and no restructuring, um, just a decree that told them they couldn't do a number of things um, and had to share some information um, about uh, the protocols for communicating um, uh, between the Windows desktop and servers. Hmm. Uh, but, but structure came off the table. Um, part of the reason was the Court of Appeals didn't seem too favorable, and part of the reason was there was an election, and there was a new leadership in the antitrust division. Okay, so when I read about the fallout from this case, there are some people who say a narrative that this was really an inflection point in Microsoft's strength as a company. Uh, Bill Gates perhaps left as CEO because he was frustrated with the legal proceedings or he was exhausted. I guess this is not exactly a legal question but what is your perspective on that you were probably paying you were definitely paying more attention to this around that time than i was i was much younger i did this was a uh, not something i remember very well but right. what's this your perspective good, right, yeah. on that well i was much younger too but anyway um <laughs> it's been a while uh so um many people were critical of the settlement um and i i, I think that um, we would have been better off had Microsoft been restructured. I think Microsoft would have been better off. I think we would have had more competition. Um, but so in know, that restructure would be like internet, like the internet business, and then like yeah, the other business. The basic restructuring was um, apps ops, 
as it was called. So all the applications would go in one company and the operating system would go in another company. Um, so that would remove the incentive for um, the company that owned Windows to favor applications that were its own uh, and to tie those together to help continue the operating system monopoly and force them to um, find other strategies to make sure that they succeed as an operating system. And similarly, the applications, um, Microsoft Applications Company, couldn't benefit in ways that were never fully pinned down at trial, frankly, wasn't the focus, but from that integration where they had some sort of advantage in compatibility over their competitors. The, the unexplored part was Word. Um, you know, Word has won, um, as we all know, as um, you know, word processing application. It is tremendously profitable for Microsoft. It was, you know, um, but it was always easier for Word's the developers to have a fully integrated program because they were in the same company as um, the operating system as Windows. So that wasn't touched and. Um, that continued um, to be very powerful. So if that had been um, pulled apart, who knows what would have happened, but maybe we would have had more competition. So there were a lot of people who were critical of that. People were critical of the um, injunctive relief in itself that maybe didn't go far enough or um, it was only stopping practices that some of which Microsoft appeared to have abandoned. Um, I think in retrospect, the injunctive um, uh, part of the remedy might have been more helpful than at least I gave it credit for and that others gave it credit for because it, it stopped behavior that Microsoft um, might very well have engaged in to suppress developments in the mobile operating um, systems uh, for mobile phones. So they were already moving um, in 1999 to pressure Nokia um, we, it's hard to remember um, back this far, uh, but you know there was a, a nascent smartphone at the time, and they were trying to pressure Nokia with its uh, what was then called the Personal Digital Assistant (PDA) um, to uh, adopt Microsoft operating systems. So they they couldn't do that anymore, and in the mobile space, they'd have to win on their own, and we know that they didn't. Um, so. It, this may have opened up breathing space for other competitors. Um, Steve Jobs was quoted as saying at one point, telling the head of the antitrust division, you know, just just tie Bill Gates down for a few years. That's all we need, and we'll develop, you know, products that'll be really great. Um, not exactly what the head of the antitrust division w was thinking he was doing, but, you know, that was, that was Jobs' view. That's a that's a whole other podcast, but um, you know, uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, so I'm I'm really curious about to what degree this caused Bill Gates to leave and go off yeah, on philanthropic. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't I don't I have no um, particular insight into that. Hmm. Steve Ballmer stayed um, for a while and ran the company. Um, it. I, I don't really know. Um, yeah. I, I do know, um, however, that uh, Windows continues to be enormously profitable for Microsoft. So although, you know, they may struggle in some other parts of the business, um, 
one of the things that didn't happen from the litigation was to end their monopoly uh, in the operating system market, which in some ways was, you might think, what the government was trying to do. So if you look at um, sort of recent uh, figures um, in terms of Microsoft's profits, um, their annual revenues from Windows is about $18 billion dollars with a B, and about 92% of that is profit. So this is still a very lucrative business, and one with, you know, that the government in the end did not um, interfere with. Like, I think about this as a software engineer. Like, as a software engineer, the places that I have, you know, there's a, there's a direct correlation between how much I enjoy working at a place and how much I admire the leadership and how inspiring the leadership is. And I think it's hard I think it's really hard to understate how important the leader of a particular organization is. And uh like I think you would find a very uh extreme correlation between the how inspiring a leader is and uh and the cadence of its uh stock price increase um and and so i i I do think about this question of like did you know was this trial the did this trial lead to bill gates leaving the company and but whatever it's all that's all speculation um but you know moving towards the present like we when we look when we look back now at the microsoft case many of the counter arguments that microsoft was making in in the case came true so for example you know linux is now the dominant server platform uh you know mobile platforms have emerged out of both apple and google Java became the dominant language. Facebook and Amazon have created these giant defensible businesses that are totally agnostic of the Microsoft platform. And this is in this is such a stark contrast to a world, you know, the world of the 90s where micro, it looked like Microsoft was just going to eat the world. Um and my my sense, I know it's hard to think about the counterfactual case but my sense is that we could have had this degree of technological growth even even if we didn't have Microsoft stifled by the courts. Do you think that's accurate? Um, partly. So I think what Bill Gates saw was, I mean, he said at one point there's going to be more innovation in the communications part of this business than in anything else. And I think you know, the things that you are talking about are very much Internet-enabled. Um, so why are servers so important? Um, you know, why is Facebook what Facebook is? Why is Google what Google is? Um, these are, you know, it, Gates did not control the Internet. Now, he wanted to. He wanted to control the portal by controlling Internet Explorer. So, in a sense, the counterfactual, um, may, you know, Maybe so. If there never had been a case, would they have been able to extend um, from the desktop into these new technologies and control them better? Maybe not completely, but better. Uh, and we don't know the answer to that. That's why I say the um, uh, maybe my skepticism of the conduct part, you know, reining in their sharp elbows, um, was more effective than we. Um, than we might have thought at the time, because they couldn't get into new markets with sharp elbows. They had to get in on the merits. 
and um, you know there are lots of other uh, firms with merit. So, but you know, you mentioned Linux. Linux never got a foothold on the desktop. You know, what's happened is that servers have become really important, um, and Microsoft. Microsoft's efforts, in part, were to control the server space. You know, this is actually what the European case uh, was a lot about. So, um, I think, you know, of course, I teach antitrust and write about this. So, I like to think this is really important and useful. <laughs> so, yeah, well, uh, I mean, you know, so not to, not not to nitpick, but that's where I'm li- coming from. Right. No, it's to- totally fair, but not to nitpick, but Linux is actually, I mean, Android is Linux, and uh, you know, Chromebooks are Linux, and right, these... Right, right, but, you know, when it's, that's true, um, but, um, you know, if you... So what? What is? I mean, I, I, I mean, there, I, there's not, there's not a strong point there to right, what I'm saying because right. actually, I actually think what you said was totally accurate. Like it's, it's really hard to think about the counterfactual. Like if Microsoft said, okay, uh, Internet Explorer cannot, c- cannot uh, serve traffic from Linux servers. Like if, if, if Microsoft would have said something like that, it would have totally hobbled Linux as a server platform because all of the consumers would still be on. Microsoft, and we have no idea what would have happened. And this space moves so fast. So, so let me ask you a technical question. Did Linux take advantage of the protocols that that Microsoft uh, was forced to write and publish for um, connecting um, servers to uh, the desktop? I don't know the answer to that, but I'm, I am pretty sure that the answer is yes. Yeah, so, uh, so there you are. Yeah, that's true. Um, okay. The, so other people have told me that one of the things, there was always a fear that, that actually Microsoft, that there was hidden code. So by by forcing Microsoft to reveal all the, the code for the protocols and the interfaces, that that was, that took away that fear. Um, so it all helped, you know, these other, you know, um, the, the, intercon- the things that needed the interconnection with the desktop. So, you know, hard to say exactly, but um, Microsoft really resisted writing those protocols. It took a decade to force them to really do it right. Um, So my feeling is when they're resisting, there's a reason. Right. Uh, Real quick, do you have a hard stop at 11 or can you go like 10 minutes over? Okay, cool. Um, So as we continue to talk about the present, I want to contrast the Microsoft case with some modern cases. So let's take Google, for example. Is Google a monopoly today? Um, great question. <laughs> um, the, the question whether you're a monopoly for antitrust depends, first of all, on a technical definition of what a market is, because you have to monopolize a market. That's where the law is. And the question is, um, is search a market? Since search is unpriced, some people argue it's not really a market because it's free. Um, but I think net-net bottom line, um, I mean, I haven't seen the exact figures, but I would say pr- if you can define search as a market, which I think it is, it gets monetized through advertising, um, Google has a monopoly position. There are you know, other search engines, but I think Google has a monopoly position, yes. Hmm. And so this but, is but a Google's monop- the easy case. So go ahead. Okay. 
What's well? What's a less easy case? So um, a less easy case is Apple, Amazon, Facebook, um, the platforms that seem really powerful, but it's not really clear how we're going to define their markets <laughs> and um, how we think about their market power. So those actually are more difficult. It may explain why, um, from a monopoly point of view, or for the Europeans' abuse of dominance, the first focus has been um, on. Uh, um, you know, on the search engine on Google. Hmm. Right, right, right. So, so what I think about uh, with these other companies, so like Amazon, for example, I think is an interesting case because Amazon strikes me as they're very conscious of the potential of being accused of monopoly, and one way that they kind of evade that is there is no price discrimination on Amazon, uh, and so I think that there is some shadow of. Microsoft in the way that these companies behave, but could could you I guess put put a little more color on how the case of Google having a monopoly on search and that being easy to classify? How does that contrast with these other businesses? I mean, why why isn't it easy to classify Facebook as having a monopoly on an identity system or Amazon? Well, yeah, uh, you know. <laughs> I, I like the uh, the market definition of an identity system. Um, I think just those words conjure to me. So tell me what that is exactly. Uh, <laughs> social networking are they a monopoly on social networking? When you have LinkedIn, when you've got other, you're always looking for substitutes. So what can mm -hmm. people turn to? Um, usually, when the the reason why pricing is important because the first cut of this is so suppose the seller raises the price by some amount, what choices are there available to consumers? If there aren't any, that's a sign that they have the power to raise price, which is monopoly power. So uh, for search engines, they don't raise the price for anything. So it's a little harder. You need different kinds of evidence, but it gets uh, murkier when you look at Facebook. So. What are the alternatives to Facebook exactly? Well, I don't know. Facebook does so many things, right? People get a lot of their news from Facebook. So are newspapers competitors? Um, you have all of these because of the, the multiplicity of services that these companies provide. It becomes a little more elusive. Google is sort of easier to pin down. Um, because they seem to have defined products and services um, that you can separate out. So, you know, the pure search engine seems like something that sits on its own. Uh, so uh, that's why, as I said, I think Google from an antitrust point of view is easier. The others are challenging um, because they do seem to control something, uh, but it's a little harder to define it and um, I'm going to try to remember what you suggested as the market definition. What was that again? Identity system. Identity <laughs> system. I like it. Uh, I'm going to try. Uh, I'm going to use that in my uh, class this fall. Oh, see great! If they think it's a market identity system. But but so it, it's hard. It and it's it's after you get past that, um, it may be hard to identify exactly what they're doing that's wrong. How are they excluding competitors? How are they raising prices? Um, so, uh, again, Google's right? Okay, so so you're saying even if Google is a monopoly on search, if they're not doing anti-competitive stuff, there's nothing wrong with that, right? The, just having a monopoly. This is this is standard view, I guess, throughout the world. Just being a monopolist is not a problem. 
Um, right. It's what you do with it. So, it's, so for the U.S., it's whether you engage in conduct either to acquire monopoly improperly or to maintain your monopoly improperly. The maintain part was what the, any, the litigation against Microsoft was about, maintaining the monopoly. So in other parts of the world, it's whether you abuse what's called a dominant position, roughly monopoly, but maybe not quite the same, and you're looking at abusive behavior. So, mm -hmm. you know, for Google, it would be, do they favor their own other, you know, vertical search sites? Do they, you know, are they doing something in the way they array search so that they favor themselves? That might be an abuse of their dominance. Right. Um, and that's what the Europeans are looking for price comparison. Uh, or it may be for the Android system, are they um, licensing Android in ways that um, exclude um, competing uh, systems or applications, make it hard for competitors, um, you know, to exist. So, you know, that, that may be a problem for them. It may be a problem for Apple um, and the way they use the, um, their app store. Um, so these are, these are things you can focus on and you look for either exclusion or um, price raising uh, conduct. Now, did Google break itself up into Alphabet in order to avoid accusations of monopoly? Um, I, I don't think so. Um, I think they did it just to confuse us all as to who the heck is Alphabet. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 it's not it's – not, if they did, I can't believe they're They're very sophisticated, and I don't think mm -hmm. that's, that's the basis. They have been from the beginning. I think they have wanted to be not Microsoft. Um, they've wanted – to see if they could, you know, uh, grow in a way that would escape antitrust um, scrutiny, and you know they could do things right. And they've tried very hard at this. They they're, they've run into some roadblocks now, but um, uh, so they, I think their their business conduct maybe more so than other companies have tried to consciously see if they could avoid. Um, exclusionary behavior, behavior that would get the attention of antitrust authorities. They, they, they know that the litigation didn't do Microsoft any favors. You know, it, it, um, it was expensive. It cost Microsoft, um, you know, a lot of money in the end, probably in the end, close to $8 billion. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they, they would prefer not to be in that situation. So let's talk about Uber and Lyft because this is another interesting right. discussion around monopolies. The battle between Uber and Lyft has seen some really vicious practices, particularly on the part of Uber. Why hasn't there been significant legal scrutiny of Uber? Right. So you have you probably have two. There are two things operating. Um, in a way, you've you've referred to both of them in our discussion of Microsoft. So the first thing is. Um, if you're looking at single firm behavior, you have to find they have a monopoly position in a in some market. So, where do they have that? I mean, they're taxi companies. If you define the market as taxi service, or um, you know, um, I don't know, service on the, however you want to find taxis, um, they seem to be competing. So they are competing against Lyft, but they don't have. A monopoly. Now you could define the market, um, you know, a, a little more narrowly, and maybe they do have a monopoly. But um, that's the first legal question. The second one is, I think, from the point of view of antitrust enforcement authorities, 
um, they've generally they've liked Uber, <laughs> so they view Uber as um, the upstart, the disruptive technology that is disrupting the taxi monopoly, um, which has been legally protected in many, you know, many municipalities uh, around the country and really around the world. So. Um, you know, this was the public relations part you talked about from Microsoft. Uh, Uber has been seen to some extent as the pro-competitive force. Uh, now, you know, will that last forever? Nothing does. So, you know, there may at some point emerge, um, you know, uh, a, a market definition um, that's, you know, internet-based, um, you know, calling of... Um, of cars and and maybe some of their behavior will come uh, into focus then, uh, but until then it's you know it's not. Hmm. So, so you know we touched on this these other companies briefly like the Amazon, Facebook. Um, how can we develop some heuristics for classifying these highly differentiated internet businesses? as monopoly or not? Well, you know, I th from a legal point of view, the first question is monopoly of what? Monopolizing what? Um, and I think, um, you know, the first thing is to figure out, you know, what, what sort of products are they selling? Where do they seem to have um, dominance or a high share? That's, that's, that's sort of the first cut. Um, and, um, you know, I'm not sure of what, you know, there are different, so there are different people who look at this. If you're counseling one of these firms, um, you know, it depends on sort of what their business model is and how aggressive they want to be, how close to the line or further from the line um, they would want to be, um, and, you know, understanding their business and that sort of thing. From a prosecutor's point of view, you know, it's it's just what I said. It's looking to see what market mm -hmm. you think they're, they're dominating and really trying to identify what the problems are. Are they... Are they being aggressive competitors that help customers, or are they being aggressive competitors that are trying to shut down com their competition? Mm -hmm. And you know, roughly speaking, that's that's the line you're trying to draw, and it's not always an easy one. Right now, how does the EU, or maybe other, you know, I think EU is the is the most salient. Uh, uh, nation to compare uh, to the United States in, in terms of these technology debates, but how does the EU compare to to how the United States looks at these types of issues? I mean, I know there's some stuff going on with Google and the EU right now. I think Microsoft had some, uh, some conflicts with the EU as well. How does the EU position itself, uh, and how is that different than the United States? Well, um, there are a couple of differences. Most um, most antitrust systems around the world are um, willing to intervene at a lower threshold of market power. So abuse of dominance, um, they, they, they don't, they're willing to be interventionist at a firm that's got a pretty large market share, but maybe not 80 or 90 percent. So they're willing, basically that turns out to be they're willing to intervene sooner, not let this come to the position where they're such a dominant firm that it gets harder and harder to deal with. Uh, so 
um, most um, you know most enforcement agencies have a law that allow them to be uh, more aggressive. Now, whether they will be or not um, may depend on a lot of things. So the Europeans, I think, are um, in some sense more favorably disposed to state intervention and thinking that um, through the through this intervention against dominant firms, they can make things better. Um, they can they can stop these practices and increase competition. In the U.S., enforcers and the courts, in particular, have become more conservative about this and more hesitant um, to intervene, and maybe have more faith that markets will fix things before they can fix things. So, you know, sort of generally, we have a little more um, thumb on the scale in favor of markets. Europeans may have a little more thumb on the scale in favor of government intervention and the government making things better. Um, and, you know, that may be more true around the world, which is, you know, generally, um, you know, less impressed with um, the markets will always make things better and, you know, just just let it go and it'll be, we'll be fine. Um, the U.S. is been pretty high on that for a while, um, and other countries are less so. Hmm. Now, you wrote a textbook about Microsoft's legal proceedings. Give me a description for how you felt in the process of writing that book, and it, whether anything has changed in your attitudes, or how you feel about the content that you wrote in that textbook since you wrote it. Well, it was... Um it was a great challenge. Took us a little while to write it. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, um, probably longer than it than it should have. But what it what it allowed us to do, although we didn't realize we were going to be able to do this um, when we started out, was to write the story from beginning to end. So actually, it's about a 15 year story, in fact, and we were able to, you know, really write it from start to finish. Uh, so in that sense, I feel really good about it, and it was challenging to get that much, that those uh, events, all of those events, into um, a somewhat readable, somewhat not, you know, not in a thousand-page book. Um, you know, so um, you know, hope, hopefully useful. So now, what was the second part of your question? Well, so ha has anything changed, oh, changed? in? So right, yeah. sorry, I apologize. Um, I, I think in part, I, you know, as I, I said earlier, I think I'm a little more positive about some of the good aspects of the, the remedy. I'm still, I still think that we missed the boat overall in doing something about uh, the monopoly and the operating system. So in that sense, um, I think my attitude on that changed. I think one of the things that did not change, um, sort of the benefit of the length of time, um, People in the technical world are, and this was true also of the lawyers, um, were really impressed by how fast things move. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the line was um, uh, the courts proceed on legal time and the technology proceeds on Internet time. We, we'll, we'll never catch up. And I think as you look back on it, technology didn't move as fast in a real sense as we thought it was going to, and there was more time for the law to really affect the incentives of the parties and to really have things come out better. So if you think about, you know, what is an important piece of software today, gee, it turns out that browsers are still pretty important. Um, so 
maybe that hasn't changed. Are operating systems important? Well, maybe the PC isn't as important, but it's still pretty important, um, certainly on the enterprise side. So um, I think there are certain things that the length of time of the book that it took us to write um, gave us some unanticipated benefits, and that may have been one of them. All right, Harry. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. It's been a real treat talking to you and a real uh, diversion from the <laughs> typical software engineering daily format. And no. I'm great. I'm grateful for that. So thanks for coming it's, on the show. It's my pleasure, Jeff. I'm glad you called. Thanks. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.